30 by 30. It's a pledge countries are making to protect at least 30% of land and oceans by 2030. And it seems everyone is signing on. Among those voicing their support, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and King Charles III. I commend the ambitious governments participating today that are calling for 30% of land and marine resources to be protected by 2030. We have a collective responsibility to protect 30% of the world's land and oceans by 2030. And Canada is doing its part. Global mega-projects such as 30% by 2030 have the potential not only to improve natural capital, but also to increase opportunities in the green economy. Over 100 nations have agreed, including half of all African countries, the United States, and three-quarters of the European Union. Climate scientists agree that protecting and conserving 30% is the absolute minimum needed to slow down the alarming loss of biodiversity. Sounds like a movement everyone can get behind. And yet, nearly 50 foundations and indigenous rights activists sent a joint letter to the plan's drafters at the UN, saying that the 30 by 30 focus on creating new protected land would, as they write, lead to human rights abuses across the globe, with millions evicted from their ancestral lands. Critics say 30 by 30 is more of the same, fortress conservation separating nature from people. That's the debate between Western and African-led conservation models. What is the role of people? Do you protect nature by walling it off from people? Or do you put people at the center? Hello, I'm Carol Pino, host of Africa Forward, brought to you by African Wildlife Foundation, AWF, and produced by FP Studios. This season, we're looking at African-led conservation, you could call it a new model of conservation, but its roots are in Africa's traditional ways of conserving nature. African-led conservation takes a holistic approach, connecting the dots between conservation, climate change, and economic development. Above all, it has Africans leading the charge. In this episode, we'll look at the linchpin of this model, people. Edwin Tambara, Director of Global Leadership at AWF, explains. You know, for a very long time, it was just about the wildlife. But people have existed for thousands of years and have been a critical component of how this wildlife has thrived. If we cater to the needs of what people want, then we, we are going to be successful. It's people who are at the center that's where we're going to be successful. We've talked a lot throughout this series about community engagement, local ownership, human-wildlife conflict, and the need to negotiate space between humans and nature. Those are all big issues and part of this topic. But let's bring in some new issues, starting with the essential role of local populations and human rights issues that have at times been done in the name of conservation. And we'll also take a look into the future, Africa has the youngest population in the world, with 70% of all Africans under the age of 30. How will this generation conserve nature? Will they break the cycle of industrializing to develop, yet destroy the planet in the process? Or will they leapfrog forward to a new, greener solution? Along the way, we'll be sharing people's stories in their own words. But first, let's get back to 30 by 30, because it has a lot to do with the issues we're discussing. You've probably heard a lot about the annual UN Climate Conference. 
The meetings are referred to by the number of years the climate negotiators have haggled over saving the planet. This year's conference, going on right now in Egypt, is COP27. Yes, 27 years. But there's another conference of the parties, currently COP15, which is the UN Biodiversity Conference. Until recently, the two COPs acted independently of each other. But last year, they became more closely intertwined as the negotiators saw global warming and loss of biodiversity as being related. And yes, I'm guessing that decision caused a lot of eye-rolling among conservationists adhering to the African-led holistic model as they muttered what took them so long. This year's COP15 concludes in December. The focus is on coming up with a biodiversity framework. In the draft agreement, 30 by 30 is action target number three. In fairness, there is quite a bit of language that addresses the rights of local communities and indigenous people. But AWF's Tambura explains the realities on the ground. The history of creation of protected areas on the continent resulted in violations of human rights in many places. So how do we make sure that we don't continue to perpetuate that? We bring in solutions that make sure that, again, people are at the center, they're involved, they're fully consulted. 30 by 30 also brings up an important issue around negotiating space between nature and humans. Countries are not populated evenly. It's an obvious point, but one to consider with 30 by 30. In Botswana, about 40% of their land is protected. But Botswana has one of the lower population densities in the world, with an average of just over four people per square kilometer. At the other extreme is Rwanda, one of the most densely populated countries in the world, with more than 525 people per square kilometer. Only about 10% of Rwanda is officially protected land, designating an additional 20% with the usual separation of people and wildlife would displace around 2 million people. In such a densely populated land, where would those people go? But Rwanda claims to have already attained 30 by 30. Here is Rwandan Minister of Environment, Dr. Jean-Darc Mujawamaria. To be able to fight climate change, we have to be bored on afforestation. We have reached 30.4% of our land Covered by forest. Covered by forest, but with people and nature able to coexist. That is the point of people at the center of conservation. Paulo Gomez, a businessman, environmentalist, and former executive director at the World Bank, believes that when COP15 convenes, African voices will be essential to reach targets without forced evictions and other human rights abuses, as has been seen in the past. We are already probably around 20, 24, but if we really mean that we want to go towards the objective to 30%, uh, we really need to get Africans in the room for that. Gomez, who is from Guinea-Bissau, also points out that Africa has some demographic trends that could have major implications throughout the continent. By 2050, Africa's population is expected to double in size to about 2.5 billion. It's the fastest-growing continent in the world, and its rate of urbanization is also the fastest. In 2010, just over 11% of Africans lived in urban areas. By 2050, that figure is projected to be 20%. The trend of urbanization and uh, demography can go against the conservation uh, 
vision that we have. We need to take that seriously because this doubling of population is, is just unique. We have to manage by making sure that uh, policy and conservation take into account that trend of, of urbanization. Najib Balala, the former Kenyan cabinet secretary of tourism, says the trend for urbanization is irreversible. People have dreams, young people. They cannot just be stuck in a village. They need that village to grow with the preservation of their culture and appreciating where they come from. But they need to grow. But according to Kadu Sibunya, CEO of AWF, how Africa urbanizes will not just change Africa. Its impact will be felt throughout the world. The rest of the world should care how we urbanize. Because with 2.4 billion people, how are they urbanizing? What transport choices are they making? Because if we make the wrong choices like Europe and North America did, the world cannot sustain that. And keeping 2.4 billion people in poverty is not sustainable. You could see how Europe is fighting immigration. The impact on climate change is particularly dramatic. AWF's Tabara explains. If Africa develops the way other regions developed, by 2050, it is projected that Africa will be emitting at the same level as China. The development pathway that Africa takes is very critical in how we solve the world's climate puzzle because if Africa doesn't take a sustainable development pathway, yes, other world powers might reduce emissions, but still, if emissions from Africa continue to rise, then we will be back to ground zero. Kenya's Balala stresses that remaining in poverty is not an option. Africa cannot languish in poverty. We must progress, like the rest of the world. And we should find a very smart way of balancing between environment and social economic development. Otherwise, if you give us options, then we will go to development. But we want to live like the first world. There are good solutions. In AWF's Tambora notes, many of these actually come from conservation and nature. If Africa has to make a trade-off, not to develop the same way others developed. How do we make sure that there is adequate support for Africa to assume a sustainable development uh, pathway? We are not taking a, a victim position. Africa has so much to offer in terms of solving the climate puzzle. And the backbone to that pathway is Africa's natural infrastructure. It starts with Africa's ecosystems and the wildlife in those ecosystems, the biodiversity within those ecosystems that sustain livelihoods that help mitigate through sequestration of of carbon. There is another demographic trend in Africa to consider. Africa has the fastest growing middle class. According to the African Development Bank, there are 313 million Africans that are middle class. That's almost the size of the entire U.S. population, of which only 50% are middle-income households. As the middle class grows, the appetite for consumer goods will almost certainly rise. Consumption can drive manufacturing, which increases pollution. But Africa offers an opportunity to leapfrog forward using green technology for manufacturing. Haile Mariam Deselene, the former prime minister of Ethiopia, sees a future that is not only greener, 
but creates green jobs in Africa. We can create millions of jobs with green jobs. Even industrial production nowadays can use our sources from green sources, from hydro, from solar, from wind, and even tourism, when it becomes ecotourism, which is very friendly, nature-based tourism, then you can create jobs through it as well. Tourism brings up an interesting point. As Africa's middle class grows, so does domestic tourism. Africans enjoying their own natural beauty will almost certainly increase conservation awareness. Balala explains that domestic tourism has been a major focus in Kenya. This year's revenues from tourism in Kenya is going to surpass 2019 revenues, which was the best year for Kenya's history. 70% of that is being contributed by domestic tourism. We have uh, special rates for Kenyans or East Africans to give incentive to the local community to own the pleasure of their own assets, and it's paying out. AWF Sabunya says that as African-led conservation puts people at the center, it's less about biology and zoology and more about issues that are political, economic, social, and cultural. Africa, he says, offers an option to do things differently, to develop in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. Africa offers the world, one, a laboratory for that, an opportunity to do that right. Because it's the last wild card for climate change. We are all winners if we do it right. In looking towards the future, how do you raise a generation of conservation-minded youth, especially when the old model of conservation pushed Africans aside to a point where many no longer felt ownership of their land and natural assets? The African Leadership University might have the answer. It's an elite pan-African school with a bold vision. Bring students together from across Africa and train them to be leaders. The university has a school of wildlife conservation. Benedicta Salase Amenio is the director of operations for the program. She says that when the school opened in 2016, expertise in conservation was limited. The conservation sector was rife with biological skills, the technical skills, but what was missing was the business and leadership skills. So here comes in uh, this amazing vision to develop conservation leaders with business skills, ethical skills, and leadership skills, because that is the gap. The school offers undergraduate and graduate degrees and an MBA and executive training program. It is not a traditional university where they declare majors. We say we declare missions, not majors. We engage, we help the students to um, curate and find solutions to the challenges that their mission has identified. They receive mentors to um, help them go through that journey. Chanda Marley is getting an MBA with the program. She comes from Zambia, where she is the executive director of the Wildlife Producers Association. And like many students in the program, she is mid-career. We have got classmates from Cameroon, Mauritania, Cape Verde, Kenya, Tanzania, you name it. So we are practitioners from all over the continent. We come and sit in class and we interrogate basically conservation, how it has been done. We need to have value-driven, ethical leaders driving the change we need on the continent. Christian Mugabe recently graduated from the undergraduate program. He runs the Wildlife Conservation Association in Kigali, Rwanda. So by the time I was hitting my graduation, 
I had built this massive knowledge, massive network, and the passion was burning more. There are so many opportunities for these youth. There is going to be an amazing change in the coming near future. These are young conservationists who hope to make a difference. And indeed, throughout history, it's often inspiring, motivated individuals who create change. In 1895, a blacksmith and farmer, Tete Kershi, returned to his farm in Ghana after visiting an island off Equatorial Guinea. At the time, it was a Spanish colony where they grew cocoa with slave labor. In Kershi's pocket were a few smuggled cocoa beans, which he started growing, and then getting friends and relatives to do the same. Kershi died before he could see the first sacks of cocoa beans being exported from Ghana. But today, the country is the second biggest producer of cocoa in the world, and cocoa products contribute more to Ghana's GDP than any other sector. You can still visit the original cocoa plantation and see a hospital and other places named after Kershi. It's like amazing because it spends the whole night gathering into itself the essence that is required for the perfume. And as soon as the sun comes up, it starts giving it away freely to nature. So Ylang harvest is harvested between like um, 5.30 in the morning to about 8, 8.30 a.m. The picking has to be done by hand. By 8, 8.30, it has to be in the distillery. Any later than that, and the quantity of oil within the plant drops by as, as much as 50%, because it would have given us away freely to nature. Fast forward to today, more than 100 years later. On a family farm a couple hours from the capital of Accra, Wellington Baden is following Kershi's footsteps. Baden moved back to Ghana from London to develop his agroforestry business. He didn't have smuggled seeds in his pocket, but he soon got the opportunity to grow a crop that has started to break a former colonial power's hold on another product grown in Africa. Again, showing how a motivated individual can create change. It's a beautiful yellow flower called ileng-ileng that's found in tropical forests and it's used in about 80% of high-end perfumes. Grown in the former French colonies of Madagascar, Mauritius, Comoros and the Ile de Réunion, the French had an almost airtight lock on it with a small cartel of buyers that passed from father to son. And any ylang-ylang that the French sold abroad was diluted, giving their perfume industry an edge. Then came Baden and his Ghanaian ylang-ylang. France has been keeping all these herbs and spices close to their chest from time immemorial. All that dates back to when the Europeans were trying to outdo themselves in terms of getting the spices, right? So I came across some of the ylang, which had been brought in from Mauritius by my mentor, Mr. Peter Boisson. And he graciously said, look, take some of these and try them. I got a tabletop distiller and sent it off to Rutgers University. So Rutgers University tested it and they came back and said, yes, this is good ylang and all the rest of it. Then I sent it to a buyer in France. So he came back and said, look, this is crazy, right? This is ylang, but it's got a much, much higher linenol component than what we're seeing from Madagascar and France. It's almost like a new variety of ylang-ylang totally. So 
we can brand it as Ghana Yelai. Well, the French didn't want to put any money into developing the distillery, etc. But they wanted um, all the oils once we had distilled. You have to sign an exclusive with us. Why would I want to do that? And then we set about developing to grow other crops apart from Yelai. We managed to bring in a whole array of herbs and spices to the point where now we have like 33 different essential oils that we can produce. There was a Dutch agronomist who was the first agronomist who worked with us, and he has entered into a partnership with Lush, right? So Lush is getting all the Ayelang from Ghana now. They don't have to go to the French anymore. I wouldn't say that we've broken the back of the French cartel in these plants and spices. No, not by a long way. Ask me that again when we've got about five or 10,000 acres under cultivation. <laughs> the power of individual actions is happening across Africa, particularly among youth who are using their voices, energies, and innovations to change the continent. For many of them, conservation is their passion. Let's hear their stories. Stella Njiri Kimani is from Kenya. She recently won a coding competition that used artificial intelligence or machine learning to solve an interesting conservation challenge with turtles. Sea turtles can be identified using their facial scales, sort of like a fingerprint. Uh, individual recognition has been achieved manually through these of physical tags in the past. But due to machine learning, you can be able to do this in a much more efficient way. The competition was hosted by Zindi and the aim is to build a machine learning model to identify individual turtles. For each image presented, the expected model should output the turtle's unique ID or identify that as a new turtle. Being able to distinguish between individuals of the same species is critical for modern conservation to track individual turtles to help reveal patterns of movement and residency. I've always been wanting to use machine learning to help conservationists. If you're able to build an accurate and highly efficient model like this, I think it can significantly improve workflows for wildlife researchers. I'm not a data scientist then. <laughs> My background is finance. I took a coding bootcamp. I did a lot of hackathons, so I've been able to build my skills and I'm solving the challenges that I want. I was happy to provide a very um, accurate solution, being able to identify with a 0.98 accuracy. So a lot of hard work went into it. So I used to wake up and think of an idea and I'm like, let me try this. I hope it works. Sometimes it would not work. So a lot of coding and um, debugging but I'm happy because the hard work paid off. For our next story, we introduce you to Arno Che. He's from Cameroon, and he's finding solutions to potable water for people in hard-to-reach communities in Africa, as well as Asia and India. The natural cycle of water, as it evaporates to vapor, creates clouds, and falls back to earth as precipitation, means there are about 6 to 7 trillion gallons of water in the atmosphere at any given time. 
Jay's prototype is based on extracting water from humid air, then purifying and treating it to make it drinkable water. I have an, an artificial intelligence machine that converts atmospheric humidity into portable drinking water based more of a model of what we commonly know as a dehumidifier. So I like to call it a mini ecosystem because it practically um, helps in, in communities where we have extreme droughts, desertification, as well as dryness. We have um, a prototype already and I've started manufacturing it. So I basically grew up in a community in Cameroon where um, during the intense dry season, the Lake Chad actually is navigable by food water from wells and springs which were being contaminated and various diseases, typhoid, cholera, and leading to an average of six deaths every month. I was more like an opportunist and a radical thinker. I was always like, what can I solve? How can I get my family out of, of a situation in which we, we find ourselves? I'm working on a smaller prototype, which is going to look like a, a water bottle or a water dispenser in which you literally have to place it in, in your backpack. Christine Sayo is also from Kenya. She wanted to bring awareness to the issue of littering. She's the founder of Let's Do It Kenya and is on the board of Let's Do It World, a volunteer organization mobilizing people to take positive action against climate change. Their flagship program is World Cleanup Day. The most recent one happened this past September. I have had over 100,000 Kenyans participate but just because they feel this is the one thing I can do. We try as much as possible not to come as a group to clean for you, but rather, hey, we are coming to clean your area. You better come out and join us. My mom in the village got all the villagers together and told them, you know what? We are going forward. Today is World Cleanup Day. Get your broom. We're sweeping the road. And they swept there's really a big problem with waste. So you have a lot of illegal dumping going on. So like when we have our cleanups, you just find a heap of trash at an illegal dump site and you have to clean up that dump site. And then you walk a few meters later and there's another dump site. We are seeing a lot of diseases that are caused by improper waste management. There's reports of a cholera outbreak. We've also found us ourselves engaging in what we call brand auditing. So you finish your cleanup, you sort it, and you sort it according to what material. Is it plastic? Is it metal? Is it whatever? And then now you sort according to the brands. So we have this plastic that's coming from Nestle, Unilever, or whichever company. So now looking at the data from all those regions and seeing, so in Kenya, this is the top polluter. As single actions, they look small, but when you put them together, it's hope for the continent. These are just a few of the countless examples of African youth striving to make a difference. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about indigenous people, but what's essential is to hear from them in their own words. At the recent African Protected Areas Congress, held in Kigali, Rwanda, I sat down with two extraordinary indigenous women activists. My name is Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. I am from Bororo people who are the indigenous peoples of Chad. 
My name is Melka Chipkorir. I am a Sengwer indigenous woman from Kenya, Cherangani, to be specific. They were smart, eloquent, poignant, and they didn't hold back on pointing out the absurdities of our urbanized ways. By the end of the interview, I was not only questioning long-held beliefs on indigenous people, but also some of the practices of Western civilization. Let's start with Milka and the definition of being indigenous. We have distinct languages. We have distinct cultures that we still uphold. But we have rules guiding what we do, how we speak to each other, marriages and all that. Yeah, But being a minority or just having been so marginalized for so long has led to other people and other majority communities who've been in power, who've had more economic power to demean you because you live in a forest or, you know, you, why do you move around with animals every year? So indigenity goes to the identity of who you are what you do in your cultural way of life and how being who you are has led others to demean you. As Hindu explains, that culture runs deep. In my people, you have to understand your seven past generations. And when you wanted to take any decision, you have to think about the seven upcoming generations because we have our civilization. Even they are calling us, we are not civilized, but depending from the definition of what is civilization. It is not for us having a big building and big car. Hindu was doing her first fellowship at the UN High Commission of Human Rights in 2006, when the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was supposed to have been adopted. The U.S. and Canada voted against it, but so did African countries. They said we are all indigenous in Africa. Yes, it is true. When we talk about the colonizations, when we talk about the blacky skin, we are coming from the Africa. But this is the original way of where we come from. No one, even the government or whatever, can say you are indigenous or you are not. It is a self-identification. The declaration was finally adopted in 2007. Hindu recalls the tipping point. Because they realized that all the crisis of the health that are related to the nature. Indigenous peoples are always resilience. And then they realize what we were telling them for decades and better to recognize the declaration. And that can help to open the way of understanding the indigenous culture, identity, wisdom, and life in order to help the rest of the world. Milka says even her own government in Kenya has stereotypes about indigenous people. And our forests were gazetted as protected areas and there was active evictions in 2016. I just went up to one very senior government officials and I, I just, I said, I am Milka Chepkorir and I am indigenous from the Sengwer. So I asked, why would you get conservation money from the World Bank to evict people? Like, really? And he looked at me from head to toe, head to toe, and he told me, but you don't look indigenous. I was so annoyed because I felt so offended. So indigenous people walk around naked or what did you expect to see, you know? He was like, you, no, you speak so good English. You, you can't be indigenous. You don't look indigenous. Look at how you dress. I'm like, oh, my God. No. It's sad. Both Milka and Hindu have master's degrees, 
but they note their real education happened in their own communities. I wanted to be someone who can be listened to, honestly. And it pains to go through a system of education just for desire to be heard. Otherwise, who would want to be reading every night and, and suffering when we have our lands back home and our fruits in the forests? Who, who the hell even brought education into this system, like the formal education system? I, I love just the indigenous education system. We force ourselves to go to school just to like look like them and then like, okay, let us prove ourselves. And we are continuously proving ourselves. We, yes, we know speaking English. Yes, we have to speak French. Yes, we know how to read. Like proving it to whom? And then, of course, my best education is my community education. Adding to the PhD++ of our grandmother and grandfathers on protection of the nature and living in harmony between each other. There are a number of initiatives to bring schools to indigenous people. But Hindu says development specialists often don't understand what indigenous people need. We have right to design our own development. It's not meaning that it's not a development. The thing that we are rejecting the school, we are not rejecting the school. We are rejecting the way that they are doing the school in our peoples. We want to have the school where we can learn more about water management, where we can learn more about the natural resource management and sharing. We don't want to have the school where they can come and tell us the second warm or the history of the France. We don't care about that. Indigenous people make up only 5% of the world's population, and yet they protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. They know how to live sustainably, but neither Milka nor Hindu see the rest of the world as being open to benefiting from their knowledge. We live collectively. We, we are very generous with our knowledge. The only problem is that governments are busy denying who we are. International NGOs are busy saying, you do not have the capacity. There is plenty of knowledge, but there is a lot of negativity or things that the world needs to learn. Most, let's say all or most, of the remaining biodiversity on Earth is on indigenous people's territories. How about accepting that and then come back to us and be like, guys, so what have you been doing? And how can the world learn from you? They must not take us always as the primitive peoples or as just uh, beneficiaries or as victims. They must recognize we are a partners. Without us, there will be no nature. There will be no food in their tables. There will be no clean airs. There will be no sustainable clean water for drinking because we are the one who can protect those water resources with our traditional knowledge and wisdom and way of living. So they must come back to the communities to take the decision together. Pharmaceutical companies are interested in indigenous knowledge, such as the medicinal properties of trees and plants. But there are concerns that local populations wouldn't be adequately compensated. Milka says money is not the only issue. And even within our communities, when you get sick, you go to that traditional healer and they give you the back of the tree or the leaf. They don't tell you, that is the tree, please go extract. They don't tell you that because they need to make sure that they protect it 
that is how our intellectual property rights have been. So even if we were to offer a solution to the world, unless there is a way to protect the rights of that, indigenous people will not let that knowledge just be out there. No, it's protected. For Milka, African governments must right the wrongs of the past. If African governments really claim that we are independent, let them come out and say it loudly that we are independent, even in conservation. That we go back to our communities and restitute the land that the white men took from them in the name of national parks. Of course, say sorry that we have continued with colonialism in conservation and hurting our own people, address that, and then live in harmony. Because otherwise, a lot of governments are in conflict with their own citizens. The so-called civilized world may look at indigenous cultures and see a lack of development. But Hindu sees the beauty of a life more in tune with nature. And on the other side, she sees a rat race. What we learn from the Western world, when people go to school, they wanted to get the degree get the job, go to the office morning, come back evening, get the salary at the end of the month, go to the supermarket, buy the food, and come have little time maybe with the kids, plan the holidays, and then creating these consumptions, consumptions, overconsumptions, and overdevelopment and overconsumption of the life. If you go back to the land, Land will give you what you want. You can have time to play with your kids and you can have your holiday in any time of the world. And we are complicating our life. And now we are paying very hard everything. We are paying that. And this painful for an indigenous person to see at the end of the day, we are having the right way of life. As our series comes to a close, it's important to underscore that we are clearly on the precipice of change. With major issues like global warming, loss of biodiversity, population growth, urbanization, and increasing consumerism potentially colliding in disastrous ways. And this isn't a far-off scenario. We're already seeing the effects. We have a choice to consider different paths. And part of that choice is starting to listen to people who are living more harmoniously with nature. That includes indigenous people, local populations, and especially the African conservationists who are forging a new model of protecting the planet and humanity. But before we go, one last moment of nature with Hindu and her indigenous community. In the city, it's normal, like every five minutes you wanted to look at your phone because maybe something come in Instagram or in Twitter or in whatever. But when I am in the community, it's the place where I feel in the peaceful in my mind, my head and everything. What I enjoy the most is listening the cattles that when they come back from the grazing or early morning, when they say, boo, you feel this nice in your heart beyond whatever that you can imagine. You are in touch with the real life. All the different animals, insect, your feet in the ground with the grass. I just like wish that one day everyone can have this beautiful experience, not a tiny life that you have in your calendar every day 
you see the natural calendars of your body, of your mind, of your life, and of the rest of the life around you. I wish that everyone can experience that one day. We hope you've been following our second season all along, but if you haven't, be sure to go back and listen to previous episodes. We started with learning about African-led conservation. We are the custodians of our world heritage, but it's owned by the global community. And Africans are so accepting of that idea. In our second episode, we hear about biodiversity and sustainability using Africa's natural resources. The Congo Basin forests hold about eight years of global carbon emissions. And in the third episode, we look at new ideas for finance and conservation. We are introducing a new asset class, really anchored in nature and natural assets. And if you haven't listened to season one on how infrastructure is changing the continent, be sure to check it out. Thanks so much for listening to Africa Forward. I'm Carol Pinot, the host and executive producer of the program. Our producers include Rosie Julin, Yure Wu, Claudia Tedi, and Rob Sachs. Assistant producers, Alessandra Salase and Lily Anderson. And thank you so much to the African Wildlife Foundation, including Beth Foster and her team, Karu Subunya, Edwin Tambora, and Andrea Athanas. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about what we're doing. Africa Forward second season is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation and produced by FP Studios. All opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of African Wildlife Foundation or FP Studios. For more information on African Wildlife Foundation, please check out awf.org. And for more on FP Studios, you can go to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts.